Welcome to the podcast, Gavin and Carrie, and big thanks to both of you for joining me today on such short notice. So we were supposed to have the former 2020 Libertarian Party vice presidential candidate Spike Cohen on our podcast this week, but unfortunately he had a last minute flight and wasn't able to join us. And also Matt had to gracefully bow out this week due to previous engagements. So I asked you two, two of the smartest people I know, to come on the podcast today to talk about a topic I don't think enough people are really talking about right now. So for our audience who saw the title of the podcast, but don't really know what CBDCs are, that's okay. A lot of people are in that same situation or still unfamiliar with the term. So CBDC stands for Central Bank Digital Currency. Now, when most people think about digital currencies, they think of cryptocurrencies. This is similar, except the key differences here is that the CBDC would be centralized, whereas most cryptocurrencies are decentralized, meaning there are different factors that control them, including the blockchain, which is a distributed ledger for transparency. And depending on the network or protocol, individual nodes, which nodes are basically a distribution point. And the CBDC is a different animal altogether in that sense. It could be centrally controlled, and it's basically a monopoly on fiat currency issued by central banks. So the reason why this should concern you is multifaceted. We recently saw the debacle surrounding the PayPal controversy after a published policy update basically laid out their terms of conditions to include a fine of $2,500 for anybody spreading misinformation. Of course, after the backlash exploded on the internet, they rescinded that policy and they're now even sending customers who tried to cancel their accounts a $15 PayPal voucher to keep them on board. So we don't have to go too much further than the protests in Canada as well to see the government freezing the bank accounts of hundreds of protesters in Ottawa that were protesting the COVID lockdowns and the emergency powers. Uh, so another reason that I believe that this incoming threat uh, is worthy of our time and attention is that I recently caught two different fact check violations for a meme that I made warning about CBDCs and how they'll be sold to us as a new convenient tool for our fast paced modern life. And of course, that was Facebook and Instagram, you know, two of the worst. And of course, when I challenged the so-called fact checkers, they they placed originally they placed the rating that was a false post. But once I challenged them, they updated it to a missing context, which you know I believe is a fallacy in itself, but that's another story. So basically, this kind of indicates to me that the establishment media attack dog fact checkers are now starting to target any posts that relate to the CBDC. And to me, that's a huge red flag of what's to come. Now, this morning, I also saw another article by Forbes entitled, Why You Should Be Excited for a Central Bank Digital Currency. <laughs> which is concerning, especially when we know that the mainstream outlets like Forbes basically advertise narratives for new tools for the ruling class. And, you know, at the Free Thought Project, we've also been covering this for several months now and recently aggregated an article yesterday from a site called Reclaim the Net entitled IMF, which is the International Monetary Fund, now planning to tie CBDCs to digital IDs to push society into new equilibriums. And basically in the article, the central bankers claim that in order for a digital currency to be effective, it will also have to be protected and to safeguard the privacy of citizens, which of course they have a predetermined solution to, which is the digital ID. They also talk during the panel about how society will be, need to be pushed in a desired direction, much like society had to be pushed into the adoption of the use of electricity or sewage systems. 
And I know this ties into the WEF's more popular platitude, which is uh, you will own nothing and be happy. I know we've talked about the World Economic Forum before on this podcast with you, Gavin, and that podcast got a lot of downloads. I know it was one of our more popular ones. And Carrie, I know you have an intricate understanding of the dangers of centralized government. So now that I've talked for far too long, providing some context to our listeners, Gavin, like, what are your thoughts about the CBDC and the incoming digital ID? Yeah, so it's a great topic and it's something that should be on everybody's radar because at the risk of sounding um, like I'm exaggerating, but I'm certainly not, is that it introduces a brand new paradigm in, in banking, in centralized governance and central banking. And that paradigm is just as significant as when central banking, particularly private central banking, was first introduced um, and the damage that it has done historically. It, it should be noted, just in terms of the historical context, that banking institutions have been recognized as really tools and weapons of war against the common people. I'm sure you guys are familiar, and it is a legit quote, it comes from a letter penned by Thomas Jefferson, where he states that he believes that banking institutions are more dangerous than armies, than standing armies. This will be that on steroids. It will take the control structure that is enveloped and encapsulated by banks, by these big banks, and, and take it to something that has never been seen before. So the description that you had, is a, it's a succinct one, it's on point. With the easiest way to understand it is it's basically, it's a cryptocurrency, but it's completely centralized. So it's the opposite of the initial intention, which is to decentralize it to remove uh, the regulations from the authoritarian uh, powers that be and give the power to the people. So with the introduction of this, and really it's not just the introduction, it's actually these countries that have gone live already. So this this digital currency, this central banking digital currency, is it's actually live in five countries last time I checked. Uh, one of those is Nigeria, which is the biggest economy in Africa. And what I see going on with this, and I haven't heard anybody put this in the proper context, is that there are a very large number of people that we often overlook around the world that are actually offline. And since 2019 to 2022 now, which is to, you know, in the midst of the so-called pandemic, that has grown by an additional 1 billion users. And there's a massive push to get people to go online. And then what is coinciding with that is to get people to be assimilated into digital banking. And this is being targeted specifically in developing nations, most notably Africa. So I find it very interesting that Nigeria already has, and they've got a, a fit for such a large economy, they have a very low um, usage or uh, number of internet users. And then also to go hand in hand with that is that there are hundreds of millions uh, of people that may be over a billion, two billion, I'm not specifically sure, but at least hundreds of millions of people around the world who actually have no connection to banks, believe it or not. So what this introduces now is a spider web uh, that is unprecedented. You can now capture that market. And I think it also runs parallel to the fact that now they see, the ruling class sees, okay, we have the internet where we want it. We have co-opted Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, because initially in the beginning, as I'm sure you guys know, it was it was fairly easy to, I don't want to say easy, but by way of comparison, it was quite easy to go viral, to get very controversial content that was significant out there without being censored. But this whole so-called pandemic thing, it has introduced an unprecedented level of censorship and also a major migration of people going online. Um, so today there's about 60% of the world's population, that's what estimates are, that are online, which leaves still a very large number of people that they are trying to get online and that they are trying to get in, incorporated into these digital banking structures, centralized digital banking, and then also digital identities. And now that they see that they have the internet in such a position that it's so controlled, it makes an excellent, excellent system of social engineering that will usher in this 
you know, one third of the world's population that is not online. So if you can get them to come online, they have no awareness, no knowledge of pre-censorship with the internet. And then you also, alongside that, introduce the centralized mechanism. This is undoubtedly going to be attached to certain desirable, and of course, I mean that from the, in the most subjective way, desirable from the standpoint of the ruling class, it will be attached to what they consider to be desirable behavior. In fact, there was uh, in Belfast Island, they actually have something like this already there. They call it the Belfast coin. And this was introduced, unsurprisingly, through uh, an initiative known as 100 Resilient Cities by the Rockefeller Foundation. Big surprise there. And it, it's a cryptocurrency. They're still using it. And it's attached to doing desirable behaviors. Um, on the website, they use some kind of colloquial term like, you know, green behavior or some something ridiculous like that. And if you do things according to the status quo, according to what the authorities believe is to be best, then you are going to get cryptocurrency. And that sounds fantastic, right? But then, of course, this will undoubtedly get rolled out to social media. So, Jason, you were talking about how you got dinged for uh, a post that, of course, the censors didn't like. Well, then, if that gets attached to your digital identity, if that gets attached to your wallet, then, of course, that's going to go down. Something analogous to the social credit system in China. And that's a very real threat that I think people are not taking into account. And if we go there, which it's likely that we will, this introduces something that has never been seen before in society. And so it's absolutely imperative that every one of us starts to look a bit closer into this and we start to recognize that this is a whole new level of authoritarian control. Yeah, you make a lot of salient points and bring up a lot of important factors about this. I think one of the most disturbing things to me, which is not surprising, but disturbing is this is nothing new. It's an escalation, but it's also so textbook government and authoritarian. Uh, I was just reading, I think, the Atlantic Council, which is, as some of you probably know, it's quite a shadowy uh, government adjacent organization. And I was reading a paper that some people there put together on the new CBDCs, and one of the justifications they use is they want to facilitate competition, which to me is so hilarious <laughs> and backwards because they have a monopoly on currency, and this just ties into that, like how they could possibly believe that this is competition. I think they're viewing it as this competition against the rise of cryptocurrencies, but it, it really bastardizes the spirit of cryptocurrency by making it centralized, by in many cases, or it seems to be, I saw Jim Powell talking about this, the Fed chair, I think, he was saying it's not anonymous. And I know that not all cryptocurrencies are anonymous, but they certainly have the potential to be. So it's taking such a, a beautiful concept and a beautiful mission, and it's completely turning it on its head and then claiming that it's, it's for the benefit of the people. And to that point, as you mentioned, Gavin, uh, they are framing it, of course, as something that's for social justice and social progress, because in the same paper, they were talking about how it's going to help the unbanked. They're going to help these people. And of course, every time I hear the government or these authorities saying they're going to help, you know, like, run, don't believe it. It's, it's the opposite. <laughs> even if even if in the best case scenario, they do intend to help people, that's usually not the case, because you look at the imposition of the Federal Reserve, they said it was to stabilize the economy, which is what they're saying about these digital currencies now. So I find this all to be, it's like history repeats itself and every single time it gets more amplified, it gets more intense, it gets more power grabbing because of the tools they have at their disposal and they intend to use. And so on one hand, uh, it's absolutely an escalation. It is a new paradigm. And on the other, it's tale as old as time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great point, Carrie. It, it is nothing new. You're right. And it, it's just more levers of control and more levers of power for them. And once again, it is, as you both had mentioned, it's going to be billed as something as being convenient or a, a step towards a more woke society. And I've even seen them touting this now with rhetoric suggesting that it's going to be a human right. And uh, you know how <laughs> the left you know, is quick to champion anything that they perceive to be a human right. So uh, it's going to take some, definitely some work to undo a lot of this propaganda that they're already rolling out there. But I, I think you're right, Gavin, that ultimately the end game will be a social credit score. And once that's attached to a digital ID, uh, that 
leaves a lot of leverage for the establishment to control our lives even more. And I think you also mentioned that you know the CBDC is a response, um, basically by by governments uh, to cryptocurrencies, and I, I think that's a pretty accurate statement. I think they're starting to recognize exactly how much uh, influence that cryptocurrency does have, uh, how much of a, a game changer it will be for society. And once again, just like how the internet uh, alleviated the the mechanisms of control and the levers of control. The, the gatekeepers, you know, with the media, I, I think that crypto, as it's been touted over the years, will do the same for our monetary issues. So that is certainly going to be a concern for governments. And I think you had also mentioned, Gav, that, you know, they're, they're targeting developing countries because they, as you said, they don't have a lot of options there. And what we saw for a few months, we were sponsored by Dash cryptocurrency back in 2018. And what we were seeing through Dash was a lot of adoption through kind of marginalized communities. So the fact that they're trying to, yes, yeah, specifically focus and kind of capture that market, I think is a spot on assessment. And, you know, with the internet rolling out with Starlink, uh, increasing the internet capabilities for more and more and more people, this will again be uh, touted as a convenient tool for people who don't already have any types of system for trade. Basically, another concern of mine is that these are the same people who have already been controlling the monetary policy for decades, right? And look how much that these, they've destroyed the value of the dollar with inflation. You know, we're at like a 40-year high right now with inflation, uh, with, with taxation, with debt. The national debt right now is currently at $31.1 trillion, up from $26.9 trillion in 2020. So in just two years, they've increased the national debt nearly $4 trillion uh, with you know reckless spending, with the funding for endless government policies and programs. So do you really think they're going to be responsible with a digital currency too? I mean, it's bad enough since, what was it, like the early 70s when they took the US off the gold standard that central banks have basically printed trillions upon trillions without any backing and you know most fiat currency is just ones and zeros on a, a computer screen anyway without the physical asset of cash so imagine how bad this is going to get if this does become the dominant form of money and to that point you you made me think of something else i was reading in this paper just real quickly it's kind of a, a side tributary to this conversation but it, it seems very relevant to the broader system because i was reading and this is just people who work for the Atlantic Council. This is not like someone from the top down reporting it, but it's nonetheless people who work for this institution and are gathering information. And, and anyway, they were saying that one of the goals of a digital, of a CBDC is going to be having anti-money laundering restrictions built in, which I just find so hilarious because if some of you recall, just several years ago, maybe four or five, HSBC was caught money laundering. I can't remember if it was for a drug cartel or for a terrorist cell, mm -hmm. but either way, like the current financial and banking system has proven completely ineffective at, at stopping these actions and stopping these so-called criminal behaviors. And I'm not endorsing terrorism. I'm not endorsing drug cartels, but I think it's really important to look at the root of these problems. How is terrorism exacerbated? How has it started? I'm not saying the US government created terrorism, although... In some instances, they absolutely did create terrorist factions. Uh, the war on drugs has spurred the creation of drug cartels. So it's like you're creating all these problems. You're playing whack-a-mole. They start the problem, then they claim they have the solution, which seems to be quite characteristic of the people in power and the institutions they control. So I, as we're saying, there's absolutely no reason to believe that they're trustworthy to shepherd in this, I don't want to say utopia. They're not using that word, but that's certainly a marketing angle it seems <laughs> yeah i wholeheartedly agree with you carrie um i think it's also important to put it in the proper context like historically i recognize that it's been so inverted like even how you commented on how they are now saying it's about human rights and it's to promote competition which is the absolute inversion of truth which is like a consistent practice that they engage in is to just throw the truth on its head and then propagate it until people accept that inverted version of truth, not recognizing that it's a perfidious perception of this. But what you are saying, ultimately, the way that I interpret it and the way that I view it, like historically, is banks have never genuinely and truly, and I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but the big central banks 
historically speaking, and this has been recognized by some of the most widely recognized figures throughout history, whether it is Thomas Jefferson or maybe uh, or Napoleon even, or one of these figures that are obviously at the top of the proverbial pyramid, they are kind of in a position where they use this as a tool of control. And it's not a fair system. I mean, we can just see within our lifetime, within our generation, what happened with the global economic crash, I think it was in what, 2008? Nobody went to jail for that. No real criminal figure went to jail. But in hindsight, we know that with that massive depression that hit America and then throughout the whole entire world, suicide rates skyrocketed, heart attacks skyrocketed, people's businesses went under. And then, of course, there were the protests. I know, Jason, that's something you initially got involved in, myself as well, that was kind of the Kickstarter for me. And people who were involved in the protests got arrested, but none of the bankers. And what you were saying, Kerry, about HSBC, the, Hang the Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation, I think you are actually correct that it's not just the one. I think they got caught doing both things. In fact, HSBC, <laughs> yeah, it's insane. HSBC was built on opium money in, uh, during the opium wars in China. So they were founded on opium money. And it's very fascinating because every now and then, it's been on more than one occasion, they do get caught engaged in money laundering for drug trafficking. So for us now to say that we're going to entrust these people with what is essentially an unprecedented level of control, ensure it, they, they will do it in a very innocuous way. It'll be very inconspicuous. They'll just kind of, you know, step over that line a little bit and make it seem, oh, it's so great and humanitarian. And sure as hell, the first few examples are gonna be beautiful going to help out those most in need and i mean how can you be against this it's such an emotionally captivating thing but as time goes on they are absolutely going to use it as an unprecedented tool of control and um it's just so important that first people become a little bit better aware of the past history of how consistently these banks have been engaged in dubious activities like drug laundering that they have been used to get countries in absolutely insurmountable debt. Uh, it's important to establish that. And then it's also to recognize, like you said, Jason, the characters that are still in positions of power today, the ones behind the levers that are pulling these levers and that are pushing these buttons, it's the same crowd. And they are not beholden to the common people. They are beholden to the ideology of elitism. So I, I just wanted to quickly reinforce that Banking institutions, historically speaking, have been a problem. I'm not saying that all of them are bad. We can come up with some kind of alternative where, um, you know, I know, for example, a buddy of mine, he used to work at uh, one of those, I can't remember what it's called now, but it's, it's like a small bank and they were very helpful and they give interest-free loans and so on. So there, there are alternatives. And as well, what you were saying, Jason, the cryptocurrency kind of revolution that we had that was being spearheaded by the people, what did the ruling class initially do with that? They tried to degrade it. They tried to trivialize it. They told people don't get involved. It's, you know, it's a disaster. It's going to implode. And it just snowballed. So what I see with that, and it actually runs as well in parallel with the internet itself, which created just this massive awakening in society it's, it's so incredible to be a part of that because i witness or i consider what we are living through to be like the greatest revolution in human history we are in the midst of a revolution but now we are in the midst of a counter revolution so the internet began to facilitate just this massive awakening people became aware of things that they had never known about and as that you know that was kind of the first step then cryptocurrency quickly followed behind it to break free from the authoritarian system. So what I see, as you pointed out as well, Jason, is that this is, it's actually a reactionary movement. And I think that's also just important to establish because we tend to think of these people as being like omnipotent. You know, they're there with their crystal ball and they've got all the answers and there's nothing we can do and they're playing 5D chess and it's impossible to outsmart them. I think if we do collectively put our minds together 
with all the tools that we actually have because our ancestors never had these tools you know uh, if they were in our position man they would be rounded up and executed likely but they don't have the tools we have today and there are far you know more of us than there are of them and what divides us is our perceptions not our principles so I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. Uh, my apologies if I'm rambling a little bit, I suppose one thing leads to another. But it is a reactionary movement. It poses an unprecedented danger. But at the same time, there is a great, great degree of opportunity for us to not just counter what they're doing, but to continue to pursue our path and leave them behind. Yeah, in our conversation last week with James Corbett, that was actually one of the conclusions that we came to is that we're very much in the Gutenberg 3.0 phase right now of, uh, you know, enlightenment with the internet. And yeah, exactly. They are putting the, you know, the clamp down on that as uh, we've all experienced. In fact, Kerry brought up the Atlanta council there. And I think th all three of us have been victims of the Atlanta council and Facebook Twitter censorship over the years. And, you know, we could get into that a little bit too, if we want to uh, later, but this is, you know, uh, certainly the time, that there seems to be an awakening. So uh, the fact that they are putting more, you know, things in place to crack down and have more control, it only makes sense. And as you said, Gavin, it's not necessarily about who controls us. I mean, we could probably debate until we're blue in the face about, you know, who's controlling us. Uh, some people say it's the secret societies, you know, we've talked about on the podcast, it's the CFR or maybe the WEF or whatever. But I think ultimately what's more important is how they control us. And as you mentioned, you know, every example throughout history has been through the banking system, through the banking institutions. So while they can't be trusted, we also need to recognize the threat, uh, the, the macro threat here. And this is, you know, it, you had mentioned they rolled this out already in different countries. In July, uh, editor-in-chief of the Free Thought Project, uh, Matt Agaris, published an article entitled, The U.S. Treasury Just Published a Working Paper Pushing for Central Bank Digital Currency to Counter Bank Runs, um, which highlighted the fact that the Office of Financial Research, uh, OFR, which I guess was formed in response to the 08 global financial crisis, published a working paper on CBDCs and detailed basically how they could identify and thwart bank runs and potentially resolve weak banks sooner. Um, so they're already working on this. And some of the you know, reasoning and explanation seems kind of vague, maybe intentionally so. But you know, we could already argue that much of society has probably already handed over uh, a lot of the data that would be included with these digital IDs. Um, so some of this is already rolling out. You know, we we have to also think about that. I mean, stuff like our phones, our, our GPS data, even the credit cards that track our purchases, like these things are all kind of already acclimating society for the digital ID. And of course, the digital ID scheme will be linked to a digital wallet. And that's basically kind of what it is. It's a digital wallet, just like you would have for cryptocurrency. Um, but it would just be for the CBDC and, you know, the, the governments would have control over this wallet. So eventually the digital ID, the digital wallet will be connected to and impacted by your individual credit score, which, you know, we've, we've kind of mentioned. Um, so, you know, we're, we've, we were told over the course of the past, what, two and a half years now that, uh, we shouldn't be using cash and it should be reduced or eliminated altogether. We saw a bunch of different corporations, a bunch of different uh, counties and states pushing this because of the, you know, quote, the claims of, uh, you know, COVID spreading through dirty old money or whatever. But this has conveniently led to, led us to the doorstep of a digital ID and to CBDCs. And uh, we even saw the, the contact tracing apps, you know, that basically claimed anyway, they alleged that they were tracking the spread of disease uh, and the vaccine passport, health passport app things. Basically, in my opinion, these are all been the beginning starting point to acclimate the public to these concepts, to get them used to it, get them familiar with it. So when they do officially roll out, it won't be too much of a departure from the reality that they already know. 
Yeah, I'm really glad. I want to speak to something specific and then maybe if I can remember, uh, then expand upon that. But I'm really glad you brought up bank runs because that was also in the Atlantic Council paper. And I want to bring it back to history because during the Great Depression, what did FDR do? There was a run on the banks and he declared a national bank holiday. Just people couldn't get their money anymore. He used the force of government to say, no, you can't take the money out of the banks. And it was for the good of the economy. It was for the good of the people. But who did it ultimately benefit? The banks. They got the money back. And so it's like the more things change, the more they stay the same and they evolve. And it's like we learn from history, but so do these people. And I know it's like hmm, looking back at how the bank run went back then. I'm, I'm not claiming with any kind of certainty that the people in power are historically looking at FDR freezing people taking their money out. But again, it's it just seems to be the nature of power. But by the same token, if you look at history, how many people, what percentage of the American population really wanted revolution against the British crown? I know they say 3%. I have not personally fact-checked that or looked at it, but it certainly was not the majority of people who were getting up and getting out the pitchforks and, and organizing resistance. And I would argue, of course, assuming that my facts are correct on, on the percentage of people in the American revolution, I think that a lot more people today are resistant and are aware of what's going on and are not going to be willing to adopt it, adopt this. But that being said, the government has the guns. The banks are aligned with the government. So even if people don't want it, I think, in, and I'm sorry, I'm like a broker record with this particular point, not on this podcast, but in general, but unless people's minds change, nothing will. Unless we change people's perception and their understanding of the nature of power and government and banking institutions, they're going to believe what these people tell them. Because honestly, most people are good and they want the best for people. And a lot of them are naive and a lot of them don't assume that others are lying to them because they're not liars, because they don't have malicious intentions. So I think ultimately, no matter the problem in, quote, society, no matter the issue with government, unless we change people's willingness to accept this kind of authority and their, their good faith belief that the people in power want to help them, it doesn't matter how many other people resist it. We have to get the the whole of, of society going because with the American Revolution, yeah, there are a lot of people who resisted the British crown. But then to this day, a lot of people still believe that the Constitution and the government that was established, it, it still works for the people. And I am of the opinion and the argument that it never did. And I'm not saying people didn't have good intentions. I'm sure some people working for these banks do have good intentions. That's not to say all of them do. A lot of them have very evil and sinister intentions, but there are people in positions of power who really think they're helping the people, regardless of whether they are or not. And I would argue they're not. So again, it to me, it comes back to, to really evolving consciousness if we want to move past these things. We can have all the material challenges in the world, but as long as people still buy into it on a mental, emotional, even spiritual level, we're not going to see the changes we need. I wholeheartedly agree. A lot of brilliant points there by Gary. Definitely at the forefront always is awareness. You know, awareness precedes all change. And whether that's positive or negative, there has to be a change in the way that people interpret the world, how they interpret these institutions. And it's particularly difficult, obviously, because that has been part of their role, that has been part of their job, that has been part of their agenda is to ensure that people have had their knowledge and awareness stripped away generationally of how banks, for example, and other institutions can actually be used as weapons of warfare. So unless we do begin to interpret the entire establishment in a totally different way, which is that it's not a benevolent paternal figure, but rather it's parasitical, it is something that thrives on exploitation. Its existence rests upon promoting the belief that we need them, that there is something fundamentally wrong with human beings where they cannot govern themselves. And so it's not surprising that they always produce some kind of propaganda that acculturates, acculturates into that worldview, that they want us to believe that, damn, you know, we human beings are almost just innately evil. We are a cancer to society, and so we need these politicians and these banks and these corporations and so on to kind of be our rulers. As Carrie was saying, not all of these people are bad. Obviously not. Uh, in fact, just thinking of fact-checking and when you get into these debacles that they pull down some content that you know is verifiable, there have been instances 
pre presume you guys can probably relate to this too, where you will challenge it. And then somebody who's obviously lower in the organization, but a decent human being nonetheless, probably just trying to get a paycheck, whatever it may be, where they're under the spell of, of the empire, <laughs> whatever it may be, um, they will turn it over because they can see, okay, this is legitimately, excuse me, legitimately embedded in the truth. This is embedded in integrity. This is embedded in humanity and those noble principles. So that has always been to me a huge vulnerability for this system and for this establishment is their power rests very firmly on illusions and on deceptions. And virtually everybody that I have ever encountered does not like the notion of being deceived. And as you no doubt know, for example, with wokeism, <laughs> these things people think, they perceive that they are aligned with humanity, that they are aligned with integrity, that they are aligned with truth. So they have the appropriate principles, but again, it's just their perceptions that have been corrupted. And the thing about that, specifically in this age of internet and in the age of information sharing, which even with the censorship, we all know the dark corners of the internet you can go to to still find out <laughs> relevant information, right? Even with that, what invariably is going to come is that more and more people are going to become disillusioned. And as we all know, since we are on this podcast, based on the path that we have taken, once you are disillusioned, once you are awakened to authentic reality, and once you are aligned with objective truth, and I'm not saying anybody is entirely aligned with objective truth, it's an unending process, it's an unending pursuit, but when you do become aware, at least on an introductory level of what's really going on, you can't help but speak up, you can't help but stand up, you can't help but oppose this establishment. And I may be romantically optimistic, but I do believe that will be their downfall. I think they are going to try everything and anything they can in their bag of tricks. And unconsciously, unwittingly, this is going to force the human soul to dig deeper within itself, to swim to the proverbial bottom of our ocean. It represents what we are, which is still very much a mystery. And try as they will. And unfortunately, there's going to be still a lot of suffering. When it's all said and done, I think humanity will triumph. Beautifully said, Gavin. And yeah, I share that optimism with you. I think we have to, to stay in this work. And um, it, it's easy to get blackpilled doing this, you know, but we have to kind of keep that eternal optimism for a head just to stay on straight and to, I don't know, it, it just have the tenacity to continue moving forward. It is not easy. One of the things that, Carrie just mentioned, and I don't know if she said it in so many words, but I think it's worth kind of focusing on for a moment is the fact that government is a monopoly on violence. So as we've been saying, they will do whatever they have to, whatever they can to manipulate us, to appeal to our emotions. Yet they nine times out of 10 won't even abide by their own laws, their own rules, their own regulations, their own policies. So Again, this doesn't lead me to having much con confidence to believe that even if they were to sell this to the public, these CBDCs and digital ID, to the public as being a, a benefit to society, what's to say they're not going to just turn around and change some policy like they did in Ottawa, like the Canadian government did? And far as, to my knowledge, that was unprecedented. I had never heard of governments actually freezing bank accounts. I think I read it was um, up to 200 different bank accounts and about $6.7 million in total of protesters, people who were protesting the, the current lockdown policies. So, you know, we've, see, we've seen almost all aspects of our lives under the boot of centralized control. Uh, we could probably go down the list, you know, I mean, law enforcement, the courts and justice system, the public education, defense, banking, healthcare, monetary policy, food and drug regulation. I mean, most acts of travel, all these things, when you, when you think about these things, do you think that they're actually being provided to society with value? Do, do you believe that they're, um, 
actually beneficial or do they feel like levers of control to manage and manipulate our lives? To me, it, it's more of the latter. So I just have a hard time. And maybe it's because I, I you know, have been red pilled for a long time. But for me, it's it's really hard to understand why and how there's still so many people in the age of information that will likely go along with this. And I, I couldn't have stated it any more brilliant, Gavin. I, I think the woke movement is exactly that. And I think this is kind of the next level of propaganda and manipulation within society is capitalizing on those who do have empathy and, and do want to see a better society. But instead, they're manipulating us through these backdoor policies, through ways that we can't even tell or comprehend, and especially the people who are you know, being used as useful idiots, to actually implement the opposite of these things and give themselves more power, more control, more money. So yeah, I mean, the emotional manipulation aspect, I think, is kind of the linchpin to this whole conversation and to government in general. It's really the only tool, well, one of the only tools that they have besides violence. So I like to bring it back to history because we're talking about how pretty much every industry is corrupted. It's under the thumb of government in some way or another, or it's influencing government in a very toxic and uh, hegemonic way. And this calls to mind to me, FDR was really a piece of work and he really transformed people's perception of government. He was not the first to to plant a seed of, of quote, progressivism and the expansion of government power for the sake of the little guy. But something I find so interesting and, and really just disappointing and, and you know, all, all, the, all the negative adjectives. But the, so he had a program when he came to power because farm prices had plummeted. And so he got the government involved in incentivizing farmers to produce less. And the goal was to increase prices, which is like the central planning, which is what we're talking about, this version of economics where the government can, you know, wave its magic wand and make things all better. And I was reading about this recently and what's it's funny, but it's also terrible. But it, it what it turned out that it had no not no effect, but what actually brought farm prices up was a severe drought that really reduced demand or reduced the supply. And so like the natural factors still overpowered all of these these big grandiose tricks the government tried to play. And to that end, his whole new deal really failed to uplift the economy. There was actually another recession in like 1937, 1938, and unemployment rose again. And this is after he used the, the powerful central government to, quote, give people all these jobs using taxpayer money, of course. And I just wanted to bring that up to speak to, one, people's perception of good intentions, because... If you talk to most people on the left today, the New Deal was unquestionably good. It saved people. It lifted people out of poverty. It ended the Great Depression. That's not true at all. In fact, it may have caused more harm than good, and it certainly did not end the Depression. So I just want to bring that back because we're talking about central power. We're talking about people's perception of government. And I just want to keep hammering home that nothing has changed. It has always been this way. And I'm not surprised because the nature of power, at least government power, has always been through violence, it's through force, it's through using authority to control people. And not only is that immoral on its face, but when you look at the results and the outcomes as we're talking about, it's not effective. And I just wanted to hammer that home because to me, that's what's so important is recognizing these patterns. This is not just recent history. This is like all of history. And a lot of people don't get that because they've been taught otherwise in public schools. Oh, look, another industry, another area of quote society that the government has controlled and that has almost total power over. These central planners are absolutely crazy. And I don't know, it's kind of like this <laughs> strange mindset that they know what's best for, you know, 330 million people, at least in this country. And it's systemic. It's through completely throughout society. I mean, it's on par with the Atlantic Council believing that they could produce competition. I mean, <laughs> that's how delusional these people are. It's like, no, fuck face, just get out of the way. Like, <laughs> just get move out of the way. Competition will be there, but you're the people who are restricting competition. Uh, first, just to what Carrie was phrasing there, I think history is, I love history. I mean, authentic history, not bullshit history. But authentic history is fantastic because it does. It represents patterns. It's almost like a science of how society works. You see these patterns and then you can make measurements and you can kind of predict what's to come. Um, before I do address that though, and also specifically FDR, because yes, the myth of FDR is so ridiculous. But like you were saying, Jason, about these, 
these characters that say, you know, it's for more competition and stuff. I think that's at probably the lowest levels. It's very difficult to imagine that there are people intellectually that can entertain that. Um, at the, look, at the same token, at the very highest level, elitists who know that they have ulterior motives, they still do think, they believe in this delusional superiority, which has kind of been the theme throughout history, that yes, we should rule over you, you reckless swine. <laughs> you know, this kind of, this kind of silly ridiculousness. And it is, it's delusional. It's completely pseudoscientific. And uh, like Carrie was saying, it is just a consistent theme throughout history. It's the same damn song that just gets remixed over and over and over. So with FDR, for example, and I, I you know, I suspect they actually use these terms in a, in a clandestine way at times. I consider that because the era of FDR was incredibly progressive, just like today is progressive, but not for the common people. It's progressive for the ruling class. So during the time of FDR, and it's no surprise, this dude comes from two of the most powerful elitist families. That's where his bloodline runs from, which is Delano. Delano actually made their fortune uh, also during the opium wars, smuggling opium into China. And then, of course, the Roosevelt family, also another very powerful family that doesn't get a lot of consideration uh, amongst conspiracy realists and just political analysts. But during this era and during this time, because it also entered into World War II, and there's so much to unpack there. Well, I mean, I would refer anybody listening to us now that wants to take a totally different look that can be corroborated by verifiable evidence and therefore the truth to refer to a previous podcast I think I had with you guys Jason well yeah I did definitely have with you guys um, but what happened during World War II in the wake of that was obviously an unprecedented level of centralization of government so this gave birth uh, then to the National Security Act of 1947 all of these of course as we addressed were Council on Foreign Relations inventions uh, then there was the United Nations, then there was the World Bank, eventually NATO, the Department of Defense, and something that very few people recognize and realize as we talk about government is the ethos of the original founders, and I know that's a controversial topic because you can't found something if people were initially there, but in regards to the people that established the Constitution and so on, they were very much aware, um, even if just superficially, even if they were just trying to give lip service to the fact of the danger of big government. So they were pledged to small government. Thomas Paine was somebody that wrote you know, prolifically about this. They were very much committed to having a small government. And that is how the U.S. operated for a very long time up until things began to change. I believe it was first with Theodore Roosevelt's administration with the Spanish-American War, and that kind of gave rise to this new uh, empire, the American empire. And then, of course, with World War I, they wanted to go ahead and consolidate that power with the League of Nations, but it just didn't work out very well. And part of the reason why it actually didn't work so well is people became just uncompromisingly aware of how governments throughout the entire world, so there's not one good government and one bad government and you know, how people fall into this silliness, all of the governments were propagandizing and deceiving their citizens about World War One, and it became widely available, this information. So people were disillusioned. They didn't want a part of any kind of globalist government. Well, they waited a bit of time. World War Two came around. And in the wake of that, they created an unprecedented global government. So in that regard, it is remarkably progressive for the ruling class. It's just not progressive for us in any way stretch. Uh, in, in any stretch of the imagination. Um, another important note is, I'm sure you guys have heard of this before, is democide, right? Which is basically death by government, which is to say that the worst harm, the, the, the greatest mass murder ever portrayed in history has been done by governments, by multiple governments. Um, I would also like to remind everybody that with the so-called pandemic that just passed, the measures that were imposed, I mean, I gave a five-hour presentation about this, went into 
just cogent detail just absolutely so much information and all verifiable where it was completely pseudoscientific there, there was no genuine evidence if you are to measure for lockdowns and against lockdowns if you are to objectively sit down and measure the two sides of that there's no way you as a scientist as somebody dealing with actual objective verifiable evidence peer-reviewed research can go with doing lockdowns and now as a result of that throughout the world there's a mental health epidemic already in 2020 there were reports from the united nations university that eight percent of the entire world's population so roughly half a billion people are being pushed into poverty because of the lockdowns according to the world food program an additional 130 million are being pushed uh, who are starving to death literally and this is just what i remember off the cusp of my head i mean i've already said the implications of what's transpired are going to resound throughout history i mean it's it's been disastrous and who imposes of course when you read the news headlines you'll see stuff like oh coronavirus is pushing 10,000 people to starve every day coronavirus is causing depression coronavirus is not a policymaker <laughs> it does not have a mind of its own government did this government did this government put people under government put people in the immunocompromising position alongside with the establishment media which works very closely with them which is all one big branch of elitism they put people in the immunocompromising environments of psychological fear permanently through social media through the establishment media and so on so there's just so much evidence as you guys are pointing out and again like carrie said man this is this goes back throughout history it's such a long and old exhausted story and yet it continues but i do think just to be a little bit optimistic i don't want to be all doom and gloom that we are actually in a position where we can we can do something formidable about it for the first time um, in in a very long time back to when there were tribes that could actually rise up and have a formidable um, subversive defensive strategy against whether it's the roman empire with the barbarian tribe the so-called barbarian tribes whatever it is of course we're living in a different age and that's because the warfare today and it's always actually been this way is about information and yeah deception skullduggery it is so so skilled i mean it can wrap you up in its web and it's so hard to get out of it but if there's one thing that can overcome it it's verifiable truth so as long as we fight with those weapons um, since we naturally by nature have an inclination towards humanity the principles of humanity integrity and truth and so on if we can get those principles to align with the perceptions of what is objectively true and what is objectively verifiable and it's not a matter of if it's just a matter of when i completely agree and i think that speaks to the inevitability of history because I, I studied history that was my major in college so that, that's part of the reason i'm so into it and i keep bringing it back to that but if you look at the long view of history yeah there have been really dark times very oppressive times but overall i mean there was a time when people believed that kings individual kings had a divine right from god to rule and most people don't believe that anymore i'm sure there are some people somewhere on earth that do believe that but that that's dead and gone by and large and currently we're struggling with a system where people view the state kind of like a god they won't put it in those terms they don't believe like they in their conscious minds that's not what they think but if you look at the implications of their views that's what they think they're so dependent on it and that's to me left or right because the right loves to believe they're anti-government but if the constitution's a government man and if you look at the people who founded the constitution who created it they violated it as soon as they took power george washington was denigrating the principles of the revolution when he put down the whiskey rebellion john adams passed the alien and sedition act thomas jefferson he there's a document a letter he wrote saying well i think the louisiana purchase needs a constitutional amendment for me to do that and then he didn't do it and the Constitution was a, a great, great revolutionary document even, but it was still misguided and it was still predicated on the belief that government can do good. And unfortunately, we're still stuck in that current paradigm of consciousness about how people relate to democracy and republic. I know it's not technically a democracy. It's still government. But that being said, it was still better than people believing in divine right of kings. And the long view of history to me Overall, yes, there are two steps back, one step forward a lot of the time, but overall, the trend and the evolution is toward individual freedom, and I'm going to die on that hill. Yeah, 
I think that makes three of us. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting close to um, wrapping up. I did want to just make a quick note. Uh, Gavin mentioned democide. And for anybody who's not familiar with democide, the, the researcher from the University of Hawaii, RJ Rummel, uh, did some research and basically came to the conclusion that last century, 262 million people uh, were killed by their own government and murdered six times more people than died in combat in all foreign and internal wars throughout the entire century. So uh, that's <laughs> worth noting, in my opinion. And uh, as Kerry said, you know, government is the only religion that you can't opt out of. <laughs> I was going to ask you guys if you have uh, either any closing words or if you want to plug anything before we wrap this up. Uh, I just want to paraphrase Ron Paul, who said, an idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army. I, I'm not sure if that's the exact quote, so paraphrase, but I could not agree more. And that's sort of just what I was just saying about the nature of history and the evolution of humanity. So as dark as it may seem, there are people who, and an increasing number of people who are questioning that and who are really determined in a very principled way to to move beyond where we're stuck right now. And I think it's only a matter of time. And that's why we see the authorities and the people in power working so hard to subvert it. And if it weren't inevitable, they wouldn't be clinging so hard to their power and trying to convince people otherwise. Yeah, I definitely agree. Beautifully said by Kerry. I had no idea that you were so into history. I love that. People need to... <laughs> no, it's, it's so fantastic because history that has obviously been unadulterated, not the boring bullshit they teach us at schools, but actual history is fascinating because it helps you understand like the proverbial matrix. So I think it's so cool that you always evoke history. <laughs> uh, otherwise, just to compliment what Carrie's saying, to be optimistic, um, we forget that the way that they control us is through our perceptions. For example, Kerry mentioned in the past how they would associate themselves consistently with the gods, and therefore this was their claim to power. And indeed, the Pope still does that, a version of that to this very day. And that is because they recognize something most of us do not, that the only thing we are truly bound by is our belief. So if we can begin to chip away at our belief, at least question that belief, of course, corroborated by doing some authentic research, then we have the opportunity to break free from those dogmatic beliefs. I think it was um, Bob Marley, and he was paraphrasing a guy by the name of Marcus Garvey, where he basically said that, emancipate yourselves from mental slavery, none but ourselves can free our minds. So as Carrie brilliantly said earlier, it, it really comes down to the fact that we need not just a physical revolution. In fact, that means absolutely nothing because it just means one face mask changes to another. What we need is a, a revolution of consciousness. So that's what I'll leave the viewers with. Uh, I had a great time talking with you guys and hopefully we can do it again someday in the future. Well, sounds good. Yeah, I would love that too. And I, I think I'll just add a few words of optimism to coincide with your guys' uh, wonderful takes on this. But I agree, this is definitely one of the most exciting times uh, in history. And we do have this, you know, this very powerful tool. And as you know, we've mentioned several times throughout this, that's exactly why uh, we see the fact checkers, a whole industry of fact checkers. That's why we're seeing the control mechanisms just continue to crack down on us. And, um, there are still ways around that though. And I, I just want to also emphasize that as well. And I, I think us three are perfect examples of that. You know, they've took us down uh, numerous times and we just keep bouncing back. And there's always, if there's a will, there's a way, right? So if you're listening to this right now, you're probably one step ahead of uh, the, the people around you and um, you know, you're part of the resistance. So very much appreciate you listening. And I also just wanted to say once again, I appreciate both of you for joining me today. Um, I knew it was going to be an interesting and powerful conversation. You two are some of my favorite thinkers in the truth freedom sphere. And I think it's critically important to sound the alarm on this new potential technology orchestrated by the ruling class, because the last thing we need in our lives is another mechanism of control that benefits the ruling class while subjugating our lives and placing us into a manipulatable surf class, basically. So I also wanted to say uh, happy birthday to Gavin who is celebrating a birthday tomorrow. Enjoy that. 
Happy birthday. <laughs> well, thank you guys. Enjoy that, my dude. And uh, yeah, thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, brother.